Amen. <clears throat> that is such a hymn of assurance. I think that second verse is probably one of my most favorite verses in all hymnody that I'm familiar with. Uh, um, go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, but before we really look at our text this morning, we're gonna be, I, I, I wanna just kind of reflect on a different passage just real quick in Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13 is uh, the chapter of the two beasts, one of which really represents a godless government who pressure the church from the outside. And then you have what's called, what's popularly known as the false prophet who uh, pressures church with false doctrine from the inside. These are, these are two battles that, um, that the church is gonna be constantly facing during the life, during history of the church. But um, in verses 16 and 17, it talks about the famous and, and kind of mysterious mark of the beast. And, um, you know, you look in verse 16, it says, and he causes all, both great and small, rich, poor, et cetera, et cetera, to be marked so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. And I know as long as I've been a Christian, I, I've heard different debates about what that is. Is it, is it gonna be a social security number? That was really popular for a while. Is it a barcode? If you've ever seen those movies from the 70s, The Thief in the Night, they're all walking around with little barcodes on their forehead, you know? Uh, is it a barcode? Is it a microchip? And of course, everybody now is talking about all this wearable technology, you know? I've actually been asked, how can I be comfortable wearing an Apple Watch knowing that that's just a precursor to the mark of the beast, you know? And uh, obviously, I'm okay with it, but not the mark, the watch. But anyway, <laughs> I don't, I don't really necessarily think it's any of those things. I, I think it's more of a spiritual understanding of who is it that we're loyal to. And I really think that we have seen the mark of the beast in action this week because a school district in Arizona, maybe you heard about this in the news, but a school district has severed its contract with Arizona Christian University where they no longer allow student teachers to come in and, and teach in their school district. Now, why did they do this? It's not because there were complaints about the student teachers. Uh, they, they received consistently high marks. It's not because um, that there were students that were causing problems. No, it's not because of the standards of the university. No, their standards are very high. The one offense is that Arizona Christian University dares to teach a biblical understanding of gender and marriage. And because of that, this school district, by unanimous vote of the board, has said that we will no longer accept student teachers from that school. And that, in my opinion, is the whole point of Revelation 13. That the more these kinds of people, beloved, take over these professions, you know, the professional agencies and the accrediting agencies and, and all of those things that oversee things like medicine and, and, and education and all that, and the more these organizations and agencies and professional societies are taken over by people like this, it's going to become more and more difficult for biblical Christians to be involved in those professions. And the question is, what are we gonna do? 
unless we have that mark of loyalty to the culture, then it will be more and more difficult for Christians to participate in the market. And so what, what do we do? What do we do? That's the whole point of Revelation 13. And beloved, my, my hope this morning is that we would strengthen ourselves in the faith for the inevitable challenges that is gonna come when we are on mission for the kingdom. There are gonna be challenges in which we have to make certain sacrifices. And some of those sacrifices can be dear. And so we've been looking at Jesus's discourse and we're second discourse in Matthew and we're really coming to the end of it. This is really the conclusion. And uh, we're gonna cover 10 verses this morning, so I won't ask you to read with me, but let's turn in your copy of the Word of God or if you wanna use the Bible in the pew in front of you, it's found on page 969. And here's what, it, here's what he says. He says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. And the one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And Jesus is really bringing this second uh, discourse to a conclusion. These last 10 verses are kind of summarizing what all we have looked at over the last month or so. He said in verses five through 15 that these are the essentials of the mission, that if we're gonna be mission, missional for God, if we're gonna be on mission for the kingdom, these are going to be the essentials that we must do on that mission. And then in verses 16 and 25, we looked at the perils of that mission and we looked at the challenges that were gonna come. And then last week in verses 26 through 31, we looked at the encouragements for the mission. And, and, and maybe through all this time, you've been asking the question, what kind of faith do I need to have in order to be involved in a mission like this. We've seen the perils, we've seen that they are severe and they can be severe. And what kind of faith do I need to have in order to be involved in the mission? What kind of faith will remain faithful to the mission under this kind of pressure? Beloved, if, if it comes down between keeping your faith and keeping and holding the truths of God's word versus having a livable income, that kind of pressure is going to start mounting more and more and more. And the question is, what are we gonna do? What kind of faith do we need 
in order to remain faithful under that kind of pressure. And Jesus is telling us that the kind of faith that is needed for the mission. This is the kind of faith that we're gonna have. He concludes this way. And so we're gonna look this morning at how can we develop this? What, how can we develop a, a missional faith, a, a faith that is willing to take the mission of the kingdom, the message of the gospel, no matter what the cost may be to ourselves or to our church? What, kind, what do we need to develop for that? We're gonna see that there are three key characteristics that he gives us this morning. Three key characteristics. And so there, he tells us that it must be a faith that has allegiance, that holds Christ in preeminence, and that we see that it is going to have hopefulness. Hopefulness. And so looking at verse 32 through 33, he says, first of all, that a faith that is needed for the mission is a faith that is going to hold Christ in allegiance above and beyond everything else. Look what he says. He says, for everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. And whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is a simple contrast, but but it's very profound, very profound, simple and yet profound. He says here, whoever acknowledges me. Now, now some of your translations like the NASB or the King James uh, traditions, they're going to say whoever confesses me. And, and because of that, there have been some kind of misunderstanding of this, that it, are we talking about what is merely a, a verbal confession? Are we talking about someone who simply says, Jesus is Lord? There's a whole movement out there that says that all we have to do is simply uh, verbally express that Jesus is Lord, that he died for our sins. And after that, it really doesn't matter what happens. We can even abandon the faith, but because we acknowledge that, we are still saved. And, and to that, I say that, that is not, that's actually more dangerous than most false doctrines out there. And so what, what's going on here? It's not just simply saying that Jesus is Lord, but this confession is a confession of full allegiance to Christ. It is a confession that says that Christ is king and it is better to obey Christ than men. It is better to obey God than it is to obey men. In fact, one commentator says that it is speaking of solidarity with Christ. We are, we are claiming Christ as our own and his truth. And there's two important reasons why we need to do this because look what Christ says, that those who acknowledge me before men, what will happen? I will acknowledge them before my Father. So, so your acknowledgement, your taking in of Christ, your surrender to him as Lord and King of your life is a determining factor. It is the determining factor of whether or not Christ is going to acknowledge you before the Father, whether he's going to acknowledge us. But there's also that contrast where he says, whoever denies, whoever denies me before men, I will deny them. And again, we're not just talking about a one or two time question. We're not talking about honest doubts. We're not talking about those kinds of things, but we are talking about a repudiation of Christ, 
a disassociation from him and his truth. That those who disassociate themselves from Christ, those who, who say, I'm not one of them, and, and, they, and they live by that, and they completely forsake Christ, Christ is going to deny them before the Father. It's a very serious warning. It's a kind of allegiance that inevitably is going to show up in actions. In, in actions. In fact, in Titus chapter one, verse 16, it says here that Christ, uh, Paul is warning uh, Titus of those in, that need to be silenced in the church. And it says here that they profess, and by the way, that word profess is actually the same word we're looking at here, uh, confession or acknowledgement. They acknowledge, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. There is an there is inevitable actions that come with the true, genuine, saving faith. In fact, you might look a very popular verse is Proverbs chapter three, verses five through six. It says that trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. And watch this: in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He'll make your paths straight. In all your ways. Again, this, this kind of faith that we're talking about, this kind of allegiance confession that we're talking about is going to show up in our, in our lives, in all of our actions, in all of our deeds, in all of our ways, you might say. I love, uh, you know, um, you guys know I'm not, um, I don't normally quote the King James Version. Not that it's a bad version, but... Uh, just because I, I tend to kind of gravitate toward the NASB, the ESV, the others like that. But, uh, but there are certain words in the King James that I find very fascinating and, and, and words that I like to bring out. And one of those is how the King James uses the word conversation. And if you look at uh, different passages, like for example, in Philippians chapter one, verse 27, uh, here's what it says in the King Jim. It says, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of, of Christ. I also miss kind of the ETH endings, but that's beyond the point. But only let your conversation. Now, now if you are um, using, most of us are using modern versions. And so you see that it says something like manner of life or, or conduct or something like that. But in the old English, whenever this word was, was used, conversation, it, the idea was is that your conduct toward others, your manner of life and how you live before others was your conversation with them. In other words, it revealed who you really were. It, it communicated to them what you were all about. It, talked, it told them about what you truly believe and that your conduct before them was your conversation. And this is the faith that is needed, faith needed to withstand the pressure of culture and stay faithful to mission is a faith that is going to be loyal to Christ first and foremost. Our first allegiance, Jude talks about building ourselves up in our most holy faith. Beloved, just like, just like exercising muscles, which obviously I'm an expert in. 
But just like exercising muscles, you're, the more you train those muscles, the bigger and stronger they get. And beloved, in the same way, the more you exercise your faith in real practical ways, in every way, in all of your ways, the more you exercise your faith, the stronger your faith is gonna be to withstand the pressure that's inevitably going to come to you. You will see a lifetime of faithfulness of Christ. And as you are, as you see his faithfulness and the everyday obedience, the everyday faithfulness of your life, when those difficult times come, when the pressure comes, you will have the assurance to know that Christ is gonna be faithful in those times too. And so a faith that is going to withstand that pressure is going to be, it's gonna to have to be a faith that it, our first allegiance is to Christ and Christ alone. And it's also gonna to have to be a faith that holds Christ in preeminence. Holds Christ in preeminence. In verses 34 through 39, it says, do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. He warns this again. We will have to decide what is going to be preeminent in our hearts. What is going to take first place? Now, we've already said this sort of with talking about allegiance, but we're gonna see the extent of it here. We've already seen this, but once again, Christ uh, repeats himself as most good preachers do. <laughs> Christ repeats himself because he's basically going back to what he said a few verses ago where he said that uh, your brother will turn against brother, mother will turn against child, father will turn against child, sister, and, and, and et cetera, et cetera. And now he says here once again, he says, for I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, may not be too hard there, but, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. He's warning again the extent of how this pressure is going to come and who it's going to come from. That the enemies of the faith will be the very ones whom you share a house with. In fact, what he's doing is quoting the, God, the, uh, the prophet Micah. If you want to turn there, Micah chapter 7, he's one of those little books in the back of the Old Testament that can be hard to find. But in Micah chapter seven, Micah is also referring to his own challenges and, and his prophetic ministry. And, and he says in verse one, woe is me for I, I've become as when the summer fruit has been gathered and when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat and, and, and the first ripe fig that my soul desires. In other words, he feels empty. He feels abandoned. He feels alone. Why? Because in verse two, the godly have perished from the earth and there is no one upright among mankind. And, and he gives examples of this, just one example after another. They, they, they lie in wait for blood. They hunt one another with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. The great man utters evil desire. They weave it together. The best of, the best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them, a thorn. The day of your watchman of your punishment has come. 
So Micah in verse five and six says, put no trust in a neighbor, have no confidence in a friend, guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms, even your own spouse. For the son treats the father with contempt, the daughter rises against, up against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies are the men of his own house. Even one's wife is, is so corruptive. Even, even the one who lies in your arms at night has the potential of turning away from Christ and adding this pressure. I'm reminded of Job's wife. Whenever Job was facing all of his trials, and what did she say to him? Just such a patient and enduring, long-suffering with her husband. Says, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. That's a loving wife. And that's why Jesus gives these jarring words in in verse 37. Words that in all honesty sound very difficult for us to take. But here's what he says. He says, whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Some try to soften this and they say that, you know, skeptics and atheists will point to this as unethical. Some people try to soften this and they'll say, well, Jesus is not really talking about actually loving your uh, Christ more than your mother, father, uh, child. That, that can't be necessarily what he's talking about, right? Well, actually, that's what he said. And there's really no way to get around it, no way to soften it, not and be faithful the scriptures. He doesn't say, do not love your father, do not love your mother, do not love your child. He's not saying that. But he is saying that anything we love more than Christ is by definition idolatry. That's what he's saying. Beloved, anything that we make the center of everything Anything that we make the center of our lives, anything that we make the center of everything is inevitably going to become the object of everything. You can't help it. That's what, that's what it becomes, no matter what it is, whether it's your relationships, whether it's work, whether it's whatever. It will become what we worship. And everything we worship other than Christ will crumble under the weight of our worship. Everything. Inevitably, anything. If I, if I love my wife more than I love Christ, if I, if I love my children more than I love Christ, then inevitably what I'm asking them to do is to be my savior. And they can't do that. And every time they fail, I'm going to get angry with them. I'm going to be mad at them. I'm going to be upset with them. Eventually, I'm going to lose my faith in them because everything that I worship, everything that I love more than Christ is going to crumble under the weight of my selfish love. I will end up destroying the very thing that I say that I love. So what's the point of all of this? The point of all of this 
In verses 38 and 39, he says, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. In other words, we are talking about dying to self. Dying to self. He goes on and says, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If you're trying to find your life in anything other than Jesus Christ, ultimately you will lose your life life. But if you're willing to give up your life for the gospel, if you're willing to die to self, that's where you will find life and life more abundantly. It's a very important principle, very important principle. Beloved, think about this for a moment. If I have an idol, and and we've talked about this before. In fact, we've talked about this a lot, but it bears repeating often. If I have an idol in my heart that, that I am looking to, if I'm trying to find my life in something else, then there are only one of two ways I can relate to you. You are either someone who helps me find it, so I will love you, or you are someone who stands in my way of finding it, and therefore I will hate you. But that's the only two ways that I can relate to you in reference to idols. That's the only two ways I can relate to anyone if I am worshiping anything other than Christ. But beloved, if I'm willing to lose my life for Christ, when I find my life, then and only then am I able to love you in a truly Christ-like way, selfless. And see, when, when I am loving Christ more, then when my wife disappoints me, that's not the end of our relationship. When my children disappoint me or I disappoint them, if I am asking them to be my saviors, if I'm asking them to be my little messiahs and they let me down, there's nowhere else to go from there. But if I love Christ more and they let me down, guess what? I still love them in Christ regardless of what they do. And I tell my kids all the time, there's literally nothing you can do to make me love you any less. You will always be my children. And you know why I can say that honestly? Because I love Christ more. Because I love Christ more. And so Christ must have preeminence. He must have our total allegiance. We must be loyal to him above all. Think about this. If, if I, just talking about family for a moment, if I, if I love my family more than I love Christ, then what happens when they sin? What happens when they're caught up in a grievous sin that is going to affect them spiritually and is going to cause them to hurt themselves? If I, if I love them more than I love the glory of Christ, I might be willing just to sweep it under the rug. That's not love. In fact, that's hatred. Think about this. If you love your church more than you love Christ, and there is sin in the church that needs to be addressed, but you love the the peace of the church, or you love this in the church, or that in the church, more than you love Christ himself, you, we might, as a church, be willing to sweep that under the rug 
and not deal with it. And when we do that, and by the way, lots of churches have done that, that's the moment that sin starts to affect and that cancer gets in and starts to eat away at the fellowship. And so Christ must have preeminence. Christ must have preeminence. He must have our allegiance. And then finally, we see here in these last few verses, I think he must have, must be a faith that is filled with hopefulness. Hopefulness. Look what he says, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Beloved, we, we cannot lose our hopefulness. We cannot lose what we know that Christ has promised us. Because look what he says in verse 40. He says that we will see God. Whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. When we receive Christ, we receive the Father. We have received God. And in that hope, we can persevere. Even through the, the most harmful, the most the most difficult of trials, we can persevere in those things. To receive Christ is to receive the Father. Job gave the question of of all humanity of all time in Job chapter nine, verse two. He says, truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be right before God? That is the question that we all must answer. How can I be right before God? In fact, let me talk to my unbelieving friends who may be here this morning. That's the question that you need to be asking. How can I be right before God? All humanity has asked this question throughout all history and they've done some pretty weird stuff trying to answer it. But the question is given to us, the answer is given to us in the word that God who is loving, who is ruler over heaven and earth, he has created all things. He's created you, he's created me. That same God who created us to be, to be, to manage his creation and to rule it under him in perfect harmony, that, that same God we as, as people have rebelled against. And we've, one of the things I like to say is that we've taken the crown off of his head and put it on our head, or, or maybe today it's more, we've taken the tie off of the boss's neck. Uh, there's only one person wearing a tie here today. So uh, we've taken the tie off of the boss's neck and we've wrapped it around our neck and we've sat in his seat saying that I am going to rule my life in my own way. I'm gonna do it however I want. I'm gonna rule my family. I'm gonna rule society. And we make a mess of things, don't we? We make a mess. We fail to rule our own lives. We fail to rule society. And the problem is, the reason why you need to be right with God is because God is not going to allow that rebellion to last forever. He is going. There is a day that there will be judgment and we will stand before him guilty is charged. But because, Christ, because God loves us, he, sent, he, he gave us another way. How can we be right before God through Jesus Christ? 
because Christ came, God in flesh, God the Son came, and he lived a perfect life completely under God's rule, and then he died on the cross to take the penalty of your sins so that you can be right with God. And then he rose on the third day and he's ascended to heaven and he's offering himself to you as a rescue, as a savior. Beloved, that, that is how we can be right with God, that we place our faith. What is our response? That we, that we repent of our sins and ourself. We turn from sin and self and we submit to Christ as king, placing our faith in him and him alone our total trust in what he has done for us on the cross. And that's the reward that he gives us. The reward that he brings over and over and over again is eternal life. That those who place their faith in Jesus Christ alone and what he's done for us will have eternal life with him. We will live with him forever. And that's the first hope we have. That's how you can have that hope, that we will see God, that to receive Christ is to receive God and that also he will reward his faithful. He will reward his faithful. There's two object lessons here. A prophet receiving a prophet, receiving a righteous man. If you receive a prophet, you'll receive a prophet's reward. If you receive a righteous man, you'll receive a righteous man's reward. Imagine how much greater when we receive God, how much greater that reward is gonna be. And look what he also says. He says that whoever gives even a little cup of water because someone is a disciple, they will by no means lose their reward. It doesn't matter how little it is or how great it is. If you are in Christ, you have the hope that you will receive the reward that he has promised you, eternal life, eternal life. And beloved, when we forget this, these things, we, we become apathetic we become complacent when we, when we lose our hope, when we forget where we're going, we become apathetic about it. What's the definition of complacency? I love, of all places, Zephaniah chapter one, verse 12. That's another one of those little books in the back. But Zephaniah, God says that at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent. And, and look at how he defines complacency. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. In other words, it doesn't matter what we do. God is not going to reward good. He's not going to reward faithfulness. And he's not going to punish disobedience. Beloved, you take that away, then you've just taken away the two most powerful motivations to obey God. You can't help but have a complacent heart if that's where you are. A heart that says, it doesn't matter what we do. Who cares? We're gonna die tomorrow. Let's just live life to the fullest and let live, eat, sleep, for tomorrow we die. No, God says, get back in the mission. Get back in the mission. 
Maybe you're here this morning and you have a complacent heart. Maybe that's you. You, you have lost your faith that those two great motivations that God will reward me for faithfulness, he will chasten me for unfaithfulness. Maybe you're here and you're complacent in the mission this morning, beloved. I want you to re-engage in the mission. Build your faith. Christ taught us that our faith for a missional faith must be a faith that has Christ as our first allegiance, that has Christ as preeminence in our heart, and a faith that has that hopefulness. That's what we need in order to be faithful in Christ. So as he's bringing this discourse to an end, this conclusion, understand, beloved, one day as a church, one day as an individual, one day as a spouse, one day as a parent, one day as a child, one day as an employee, one day as whatever it is, every every single one of us, one day, probably multiple times, will be faced with the question, who would I rather offend? Would I rather offend this person? Would I rather offend this company? Would I rather offend this government? Or would I rather offend Christ? What will our answer be? What will our answer be? So what do we need to do? Just real quick. How can we start strengthening our faith so that it will be have allegiance, preeminence, and hopefulness? How can we start to strengthen our faith? Well, a couple of things you need to know. Number one, remember Peter. Always remember Peter. Maybe you're here this morning and you have already compromised. Maybe you're here and you've already, you, you compromised principles of your faith in order to take the promotion or you've compromised this or that in order to try to better your life or whatever it is. Remember Peter. Peter denied Christ three times, but the Lord restored him. And if you're here this morning and you've made that compromise, beloved, it's not too late. God can restore you. Christ will restore you. He stands ready to restore you. And secondly, Jude chapter 20 talks about Building up your faith. Build your faith. Building your faith. Living that daily walk that is seeing his faithfulness more and more and more. Build your faith. And how can you do that? Well, I'd say what you really need to do is you need to find a solid church because that's our job. Belong to a faithful church in Acts chapter 20, Peter, uh, excuse me, Paul is talking to the elders of Ephesians and he tells them to uh, build up. In fact, what does he say here? He says, shepherd the flock among you, the flock of God who is among you, shepherd them. And then he says in verse 30, 32, that I commend you to the word of God's grace, which is able to build you up. Beloved, the church's goal is not to make you happy, well-adjusted sinners. The church's goal is not to entertain goats. The church's goal is to build your faith so that you will be ready when these inevitable challenges come. 
And whether it is, now I happen to know a good church, but just saying, but whether it's Calvary or wherever it is, wherever you go in life, always make it a priority to find a faithful church. One that is interested in building your faith, not in entertaining goats. One that is not interested in making happy, well-adjusted sinners, but building your faith, strengthening you up. And by the way, don't just find one, get involved. Get involved. Join Sunday school. Join a small group. Get as much Get as much biblical instruction as you can. I was often asked, uh, I've, I've tutored guys in Greek. In fact, uh, I've, I've, I've done tutoring in Greek and Hebrew. Now I've actually been asked to teach Greek from scratch, and this is gonna be kind of a new experience for me. But, uh, but uh, I've often been asked, how much Greek do you really need? And to, to me, that's kind of like asking, well, <laughs> you know, well, how many swimming lessons do you need? Well, how well do you wanna swim? If you want to swim really well, then you need a lot of swimming lessons. You know, if you want to be able to use Greek, then you need a lot of Greek, right? I mean, that, that's common sense, makes sense, right? And beloved, if you want to be strong, you want to be on mission, you want to have a strong faith, you need to be as involved as you can in the church, as you can. Don't, don't get legalistic about it, okay? Don't, we're not going for legalism here, but, but, as much as you can, be involved. For some of you, that may be Sunday morning and that's it. Just because of life circumstances, that's okay. If that's what you can do, do it. For others of you, you can do more just because of where you are in life and that's okay. But get as involved as you can. Not to the detriment of your family, not to the idolatry of the church, but build yourself up in your faith and you will withstand the challenges that are coming. Our Father, we thank you for these principles. We, we thank you for this time. And Lord, if there's one who is here this morning that, first of all, does not know you as Savior, I pray that they've heard the gospel. Lord, I pray that it has been presented in a way that has spoken to them, that they will, you will bring them to your truth Lord, also, maybe there's those here this morning who are even now compromising. They're compromising because they wanna be accepted by culture, because they wanna make life easier or whatever the situation may be. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen them. Our goal is not to judge them this morning. Our goal is to be a strength for them, to be a support for them, to be a ready, ready hand to hold them up in you. Whatever our need is this morning, Lord, I pray you meet it in your word. May your spirit move. And may you be glorified. Let's stand together. And I want to ask you to just bow for just a quick moment and just reflect on what we've said. Are there little compromises? You know, they don't have to be big compromises. Maybe they're just little things. Maybe it's just Little concessions you're making in order to be more acceptable to people at work or to be more liked by your friends at school or whatever it is. What, what is it? Just reflect on that.
Ask how you may repent of that this week. If you need someone to pray with you, come on up. We can do that as we play.